Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. I'm excited to resume our um, podcast um, activity today and for, to start us off with Patricia. Patti will, will share about her updates. So yeah, every single time we take a break from like one recording to the other, I'm like, oh, it's pretty calm. And then todo pasa I like in one month, right? So as we're heading close to the end of the uh, semester for me, uh, since we're in the semester system, um, I was able to get vaccinated back in March. And then once I got my second dose in April, I got some side effects from it. So I had like body aches and chills and, you know, it, it wasn't, I, I don't know why I decided to exercise the day before, but I was like sore and had body aches at the same time. So it was part of it was the exercise stuff. And the, the other part was the vaccine. But other than that, it was just like a few hours of feeling that I took some some ibuprofen and then after that it was fine but um nothing too wild in terms of the vaccine side effects but I'm glad that it's done although in the news they keep saying boosters and all this stuff so still waiting to hear what is happening and just frustrated with the CDC in general because they keep flipping back and forth of what is needed and which again doesn't create any trust or anything that you know, by the time that all of us are opening up completely, that is going to be great or a, a good process for all of us to feel safe, especially since a, still a large uh, population of people around the world are still not vaccinated or have access to PPE or, you know, accommodations in terms of safety and uh, how they like live their day to day life, um, especially with everything going on in the world, uh, India, what's happening in India and what we're seeing just in general, um, different places opening up. Uh, now the CSU and the UCs in California are requiring or are soon to require vaccines from everybody. Um, I attended this last uh, forum that they had for staff, faculty and students, each of them separately. So for the staff one, I was asking them questions about, you know, well, if you're all are pushing to go in person, what is gonna happen with, it's so interesting because everyone is saying that health is an individual responsibility, which is again, how can you do public health when it's the public is involved and that they have no one that is going to regulate or mandate, you know, certain, like it's, it's kind of like saying like each department has their own say of whatever they want. But in the end, I'm like, if the inconsistency is there, then what, like, how do you, how do you have some something that's standard and that everyone has an agreement when the CDC is also saying don't wear a mask outside? Um, on campuses, it's very different and it's very difficult to, again, relate any of these stuff without having to involve police in there or what are the consequences or, again, the safety of everybody involved in the whole classroom because we have, again, different populations <laughs> congregating in, in a small space and you know that every single office within higher ed is like very very small confined 
and often doesn't have windows or spaces, especially in my center, we don't have windows. So air circulation, equipment is like, everyone's kind of just saying, cada quien has to think of their own thing and bring their own thing without saying, well, if instead of thinking of the logic, if we are requiring people to be in person, although we still don't even know what's going to happen with the vaccines, we can't, um, you know, predict the, if we need, we'll need a booster by September. So a lot of us who work in higher ed in California around the Bay Area were already getting vaccinated around March because we were able to get earlier access. But if the CDC has been saying that the vaccine is good for around six months, our booster is around September, but yet there's no information about the boosters. There's no information about what's going to happen in terms of different age groups um, because not everybody is from the ages between 18 to 25 on campuses. You also have different staff and faculty and admin and we're a public university, which means people from the public can walk around different places. And like many universities, um, especially the, CUC, the CSUs, there's not a lot of spaces for people to hang out. So the funny thing that San Jose decided to do, and by funny, I don't really mean funny, it's just messed up, is that they're doing 30 minute intervals. So once the class ends, they, no one is going to be in the class if it's in person for 30 minutes. So you have to wait 30 minutes each time so the airflow can circulate. But then they're not allowing students or anybody to hang out in the hallways. And there's limited spaces already that's open and inside the doors, like indoors, there's very limited indoor spaces. And um, they are not allowed to hang out together. And then also think about commuters, right? If it's a campus that's in the city, there's not a lot of people, if they're coming in with public transportation or any other place, like where are they gonna hang out? Where are they gonna eat? Um, if it's a rainy day, are they not allowed to be in the hallway? Like there's just so many things that it's like higher ed loves to just put a policy, put a process, put something without even thinking it through how it affects people. And then even if the people are telling you how it is affecting, they're like, well, you're going to have to figure it out somehow, like, and not provide the adequate equipment policies or support resources to make it happen. So they will have PPE for faculty or staff or admin or people in there, unless that you request it. And I asked one of the questions, I was like, uh, are people going to be checking temperatures going into buildings or the classroom or, or anything like that, right? No, unless the student decides to go into the stations that they're going to have to like go check your own temperature, which again, who the hell has time for that if you're going to move from one building to the other? And then they're saying that every department has their own thing. If there's someone who is kind of like how in the grocery stores are not wanting to wear a mask and trying to go into the building or get a service from you, then it's up to your supervisor or the MPP to <laughs> like manage that. So your own manager has to come in and try to de-escalate the situation or to enforce some sort of policy or just tell them like, hey, well, if you're not doing this then you need to like, well, we can't provide the service. So you have to like hope that your supervisor is great to not only get you equipment, but also advocate for you when situations, when you're like in 
weird situations where either the person isn't wearing the mask properly or they're not wanting to wear a mask, period. So that's pretty tough, especially when a lot of the staff and students who have kids, um, if they have to bring them to campus, like it's really hard because a lot of the daycare centers still aren't open. Vaccines aren't like having, or the discussions of having vaccines for younger children are still in the works and fall is opening in August. So they're just like, you know, they're just putting it out there. Everybody has to deal with it and figure it out on their own and use their own resources, their own personal resources for something that they're requiring everybody else to do. So it's again, you know, the situation where it's personal individual responsibility as opposed to the system taking accountability and acting like they're the ones who are poor, but asking the people that they exploit and pay to further, you know, use their own personal money and, and uh, time to, you know, put up with the, the stuff that they're not uh, providing. So it's always interesting. Um, and I have to, since I have to figure out now, going back to work, I have now started looking at my wardrobe and started buying work clothes because I have worn those in a long time. And my work right now, as far as I know, is waiting to just be once a week in person. So we're just going <laughs> to try to remember how to socialize in person and wear like work clothes and wake up early and do the whole thing about, you know, going in actual in person. But it's just a mess because, again, they're expecting us to like all of this and it's just gonna be so many hours in person with pretty much a lot of people not following a lot of things and not realizing that the effect of like what it does to us which I'm like this could all just be solved if we're all of us were working from home still um and I get that some students are wanting to be in person I get that some of us will still want to be in person but it's just I don't think people are still getting the fact that even if it was in person it's still not going to be the same because there's you know rules and things that people need to take care of and what and I don't think students even know that there's the 30 minute interval or you know these other things that are going to go on that um, people are still kind of worried about the whole vaccine stuff but how are they going to provide that information and how are they going to enforce it how do you know who's vaccinated and who's not like you and even if you if it's not your business to know or whatever um, it's just like the, the people even like paying to get vaccine cards to say that they are vaccinated without even actually being vaccinated. Like, it's just a mess, especially as they're opening up, but it, for them, all the admin are like, we need you back in person because we're losing out money. You know, they're not getting parking. They're not getting venue money. They're not getting people who buy like merch and there there's a lot of money that they're losing out but they're also son bien codos que no quieren like pagar nada so I'm just like high red being high red um and also the advising structure so they're changing how advising works so what they're gonna do is the current position that I have they're gonna terminate my position this summer and what they're gonna do is provide whole new uh positions and either the student or the person has to either accept or you basically quit, you know? So they're changing us, giving us more responsibilities in some sense uh, with about probably the same pay. They haven't even talked about pay, of course. Um, 
So they're switching it out and they're taking a lot of the advising out slowly from the faculty where it's only staff now. And so it's been quite a mess this post, uh, this past week, because all of us are trying to figure out like, how is the transition happening? Because they're also changing the way that the position is uh, done and who we report to. And the undeclared advising office is disband. So they're, they're gonna completely eliminate the undeclared advising office or how it's called at SGSU. And they're gonna see if anybody wants to take any of the advisors from there. And yeah, it's just fantastic, you know, seeing that the mess and no one knows exactly what's going on except for the people internally. Because again, not only do they want us to be in person, but they also want to like kick out people in the process. Pero no quitan o eliminan las personas that decided to create that culture in the first place. So the admin who have been there are still there. And the people that I think they were waiting on for someone to retire is already retired. But all around, the, the people involved in that is, are still there in their position. So that's always interesting. And I think that's it. Like, other than that, I have been just watching. I highly recommend watching. Um, I just stumbled upon a a TikToker who goes by the name of their uh, handle is the situational therapist is Derek. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist who's like talking a lot about spanking and uh, parent dynamics. Highly recommend they are creating a, a, an app where they're going to put a lot of their content in there and resources. Uh, once their app and stuff like that comes out, I'll definitely put it in our uh, social media posting and in our podcast, but I would recommend First of all, whoever wants to uh, follow, I'll put the show notes, um, their contact info for YouTube and TikTok. They're really awesome. Learned a lot and just had me reflecting a lot about my parent, family parent uh, dynamics, especially as it comes to understanding how spanking really is not only abuse, but it's also how it impacts you in your relationship with your parents. And I just, he just centers this the child a lot more I mean his whole page is about uh, black parents spanking a lot of it is a ton of connections to other communities um, but that's something that was like so interesting is how passionate he is and also how he centers um, black children and their experiences because a ton of pages would always say oh your parent is trying really hard like it's just empathizing with parents and he was just saying that you know, your parents can also be abusive. And so the fact that we also don't see the connections about how spanking, the impact that spanking has, or even hitting or, you know, anything related to like violence or physical violence with kids, even if it's a small tap or whatever, it, it, uh, it does, it, it just breaks the relationship. And also it, it shows that long-term the effects of it has because how many do we know in our own families that later on go into other abusive partnerships as adults, you know, and how much we accept abuse from when it comes to um, any relationship or any institution that we were part of, how hard it is for us to leave places because we're so conditioned to accept abuse and not understanding what consent is and even having like direct, honest conversations. So Derek talks about how like difficult it is. And it's so interesting how he responds because he says even in TikTok that he responds aggressively to comments. Um, 
which he does, but it's, it's such a fresh perspective, especially from like every other therapist that I've seen that is like taught to be calm that you're not supposed to, you know, he's like, no, I'm like, when it comes to protecting my clients or stuff like that, I will definitely put the information out. And I don't care about empathizing with parents' feelings because again, when it comes to abuse or child abuse, it's abuse and I'm not okay with it. And because we've been so lenient and so like, oh, you know, like, let's see both sides of the parents is so hard. At the end, he's like, because I'm also have been a child of abuse uh, and spanking, uh, I can tell you that that is just not a way to build relationships with people. Um, I highly recommend people just checking it out and, and I'll definitely share a YouTube clip to Ariana so you can know what you're, what I'm talking about. And then maybe in the future episodes, we also like check in on, on that topic in terms of what it was like growing up uh, with parents that like, especially how Ariana and I, you've been, we've been having lots of conversations of what it's like uh, being an adult, senior adult parents. And I really appreciate how he, how Derek uh, talks a lot about the relationship that you can have with your parents where you don't have to, where you, especially I, me growing up, I always felt that you had to be guilted into having a relationship with your parents. But when it comes to really thinking about how your parents treat you, even as an adult, it's so much this power dynamic where they, they themselves don't even know how to be in relationship like your parents, you know, like my parents don't really know how to be in relationship with each other without having the children in the occasion. So he's been, he's been saying a lot of how parents love to have a bad child because therefore it validates themselves as their own parents because they can both be parents in that relationship and get along together. But if they didn't have the bad child, then what do they else they have to do with themselves? You know, if they've never really built an honest, direct relationship with themselves, if they didn't have the bad child with them. And so the more and more I'm like trying to kind of have my own autonomy and, and really build healthier relationships, the more and more I'm like, you know, having to set those boundaries with my parents and feeling comfortable doing so without feeling the guilt because he framed it in a way that made me feel like, oh, I can actually do it, you know, and other people have done it. And it's not that I'm a bad child if I don't talk to my parents or I have a limited relationship or like a limited time or that I'm conviviendo con ellos, but it's like, it's, it's okay to do that because again, your parents haven't built that relationship with you to feel that you feel safe to even be around them because they're, they're not, uh, they're not honoring you as a, as a person. And so they also, it's kind of like how we always get taught in higher ed, like to not burn bridges, but that's like abuser talk because they, again, have burned the bridge before you even tried. And it's not up to you to do that because the power dynamic in the hierarchy of like, who's, who's doing what, like you're the victim or you're put into victimhood or victim situations or like survivor situations. And so I just highly recommend like looking at all their TikToks before he moves into the app that he's gonna have, which I think he said like last time I heard it'll be like $10 a a month uh, or something to support his platform. So um, pretty good, awesome content. But other than that, um, I wanna hear from Ariana, what have you been up to? What are the latest things? And um, just a quick 
check in. Yeah, um, so it's May and um, I'm thinking of housing in Riverside and I'm looking at Craigslist ads and trying to like uh, get a gauge as to what is out there, what is offered. And I ideally am looking for like a furnished housing situation. And um, I sent out an email to the coordinator of my program to see if, you know, there were any, if there were others looking for roommates or housing, um, just because it's kind of hard for me to gauge what, what's where and who's, you know, what kind of places are out there without being there in person. So taking it one step at a time, um, I'm excited to, to move and I hope to find something soon. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like with regards to my PhD journey, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, work is fine. <laughs> um, I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, You're saying it like, oh my gosh, I'm counting the days <laughs> until this I is am. over. <laughs> I, I am, honestly. Um, it's fine. Like it's, I think, um, I'm over one of the humps, you know, the learning curve humps. And so... I feel a little bit more comfortable in the position, but I'm also counting down the days till I can say goodbye, <laughs> um, which I'm hoping, hoping it'll happen soon. Time goes by really fast. So, <laughs> um, and so for the past, you know, few months, I've actually been trying to push, you know, the legal limits of my immigration status. And so I've been island hopping I've been in Puerto Rico and now in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I was reflecting about this earlier about, you know, I was just like um, going from St. Thomas to, to St. John's and thinking like, wow, like this is like, this is crazy. Just like the limitations that the government, the, you know, immigration and the government uh, puts on undocumented people to, you know, let them allowing them to just travel within the U.S. and what does that mean, right? And the U.S. means the entire 50 states and then the many U.S. territories. So that's why I'm here trying to see, get a sense of like a little bit of travel and a little bit of um, what do other places look like. And it's been interesting, um, especially um, given the fact that these islands are so close to Puerto Rico, it's interesting to see a lot of people from, it's a lot, it's interesting to see a lot of people that seem to be like, um, to speak other languages. So not only do they, do they speak Spanish and English, but they speak French Creole. And I was reading the history of the islands and it seems like uh, they used to be owned by um, Denmark. And then, they were sold to the US for $25 million because they weren't making profit. So a lot of the people here um, are black. And so um, they are mostly descendants of slaves because they used to have to work at the island. And so that was interesting. I didn't know what, I had no idea what to expect. Um, and it's been interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, quite a small island um, you can get around maybe in an hour and it's pretty it's pretty
pretty hot. <laughs> um, there's a lot of steep hills and I'm staying at an Airbnb that has a steep hill and that takes my breath away every time I, I hike up the hill. But um, they have something, they, ha they don't have good transportation system. They have a, something called a safari. And so it's basically a truck and the back of the, like, ¿cómo se dice? The, the back side. La cabina. La cabina. It's, um, they put seats on it. They put maybe four rows of seats and they made it like into a little kind of like a house. And that's the transportation system that goes around the island for a dollar. You mm. hop on, you hop off. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, practical. So, so yeah, so just before I start my program, I'm trying to get some me time and get some relaxation in and trying to explore. And um, that way I get my fill in before I, I can no longer travel as much. Um, and that's what I did also with when I started my master's. I had previously been in Boston and Maine. So when I was doing my program and my classmates were going up to Maine or going on weekend trips to Cape Cod, I was like, I'm good. Been there, done that. You know, I no, no tenía esas como ganas de ir o esa, you know, I didn't feel like I was missing out. So or pressure to or pressure to go to, to go. these places and then in the back of your mind you have like 50 assignments to do. Exactly. And that's the hard part about um like traveling, you know, when you're an immigrant and had like limitations, not mm -hmm. just like because of your immigration status and also like money-wise how money difficult it is to even think about it because you're living on a like paycheck to paycheck um just trying to figure out like what you have and especially if you're a college student like most of the time you don't have enough funding especially if you're low income or have limited funds even if you're not low income but you're broke um because of just like how outrageously costly any of these things are and that traveling is very inaccessible especially if you're by yourself um, and don't have people like that can travel or help you like guide you through like, oh, the, like a local that is like, especially if you don't want like the very, very expensive, like touristy things, you're doing a, like more local, less hidden, like more hidden, but more cultural like places to go visit um, is a lot like cheaper, but also it's a lot harder to access. Um, for some of us, especially the time that it takes to plan out trips uh, to be able to see like all these different places um, and how hard it is like to travel within the academic year um, because everybody wants to travel like around, you know, the same amount of times. And a lot of people, like even my uh, coworkers, I've been saying that because they're a lot more like extroverts, it sounds like. I'm not sure. I still haven't met them in person. <laughs> so from the personalities that come through Zoom, um, they seem like a lot more like quieren ir a diferentes lugares. So it's like uh, they've been enjoying going to places that have large crowds uh, that have less of them. And I always like thought because I'm kind of like an introvert extrovert, which is like I'm like not all down to like be outside all the time. But um, the times that I do, I like get kind of puzzled I was like why would you want to be here with like a huge ass crowd that you can't move around 
that you have a bunch of people and you have to wait for so long for things like what what makes it so exciting to like do this I think of Disneyland when you say that right like (laughs) that's like those are the places that people want to go to right like movie theaters that are packed because it's like a premiere of some sort of something este semana like Great America or uh, Universal Studios or Disneyland or something like theme park that has thousands of people around and I'm just like the parking is a hassle the finding a place there is a hassle the finding transportation to get from one place to another is a hassle like how do you do this um but some people find it exciting or like do road trips all around that um but again it takes like a special skill and also money to like do trips like this so yeah to travel on a budget Mm -hmm. um but yeah I'm I'm here and I um it's interesting just to see like the tourists right like in Puerto Rico for example I rarely see them until you go to like you know near a hotel or you go to a you know a popular place where they're all there and it's like oh um because sometimes they most of the time they don't wear their masks Mm -hmm. or they think that they can't do that they're they can do whatever and that was an issue right like um I think it was during spring break maybe at the end Mm -hmm. of March early April there were a lot of um articles and a lot of uh, yeah talking about the tourists and how they were causing you know trouble and how they weren't wearing their masks they weren't abiding by the rules and so that was kind of annoying to see and hear um and also because there were so many people coming because it's like cheap right now um there weren't enough rentals like uh car rentals there weren't enough cars like every time I would call you know trying to reserve one for the weekend they're like yeah we don't have one and it's like many many car rental places um either that or they were expensive for the amount of time that I needed it for um but yeah, it's, um, it's been interesting and it's, you know, COVID has changed the way that we work and the way that we do work. And to your point, Patia, about how you, got, you are all talking about coming back to in-person, um, my supervisor already told me that she doesn't want me to work from home. She, she can't have me working from home. It's like impossible. The work that I do is impossible for me to mm-hmm. do from home. And I was like, um, hello, <laughs> I've been doing it from home all this time. It is possible. And I, and I will, I was thinking like just once a week, but she said, no, every day. And I'm like, every day. Yeah. Every day. And I was like, that's kind of uncomfortable. Cause I think in her mind, it's, I think what people are are thinking, it's like, it's going to go back to the way it used to be where we're all going to be in our offices and we can all be there. It'll, how are we going to go to the coffee place or how are we going to go heat up our food or how are we going to, that's exactly what I asked in the forum because I even asked my boss because I'm like, I don't have the luxury to live across the street. Uh, and I wouldn't want to, and I can't either way, like there's everything, Mm -hmm. you know, within my living situation, does it, would it work for me to live across the street from the school? Um, and the fact that it's like, I, I wrote in there for a lot of commuters because most of us who work our commuters and rely on the break rooms or rarely on occasions if you're on a budget still because again a lot of this stuff is really expensive for staff too uh to buy if you're getting paid like not the not the best scale the pay scale uh, that is possible in the campus 
and the food around is expensive and it also takes a long time to wait for it because everybody's on their lunch hour at the same time too so taking food from home is is you sabes que me dijeron i don't know if your campus has said anything but in my campus they're like well there can only be one person in the break room at a given time so everybody has to kind of like wait but we can't wait in the hallways i still haven't seen the break room mind you so i have no idea like visually to even know what to expect but there can only be one and then you have to go in and eat it in your desk that's boring <laughs> with a closed door eh? yeah like we have it what kind of have- life is that i would rather eat at home comfy you know <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even thought about it we just got the announcement maybe last week about uc davis wanting to be in person to be Everybody? in person everyone Yeah, 100% now. And 100% like, everybody from UC Davis is going to yeah. go back in person. Yeah. yeah. And you get to work in person as well, or you have yeah. to. I have to, because it's un- impossible for me to work from home. And I was like, damn, how are we going to do that? That's crazy. Um, but oh, yeah, that's what they're planning. Especially when, I mean, well, Davis is in a whole different situation because it's, again, it's mostly a college town where transportation is the UC Davis's transportation uh, it has a different system than like let's say other campuses yeah but that's something that especially the summer I'm not sure if you knew but it, like because there's not a lot of drivers to get gas there's going to be a huge shortage of gas this summer hmm. so because there's a lot of people that haven't they don't want to not only work you know like restaurant jobs there's a ton of shortage on that There's also shortages of people driving like delivery stuff. So big delivery, like gas. So it's not that there's a shortage in gas in general. It's just a shortage of people willing or wanting to drive those trucks to refill those gas places. Because again, I'm pretty sure the pay is not great. You know, a lot of us are thinking, how <laughs> you rethinking our lives? Have we been mentioning in our podcast of the past year, you know, reflecting a lot, seeing what our threshold is and We don't want that kind of stuff. And so that's why a lot of people are now pushing to have everything back on person so they can back again, control us on how we live our lives. And, you know, in the same logic that we had, like in our center, we're just like, okay, we're, we're, we're a kind of job that interacts with a ton of people throughout the day. Um, that's kind of a place or a reason to even more so like have it virtual But no, kidding. Uh, por lo menos they like kind of negotiate and said, well, at least I, we need to have some people each day. So the way that we are managing it is that a few of us will show up. Not everyone will show up in the same time because again, even the space doesn't allow us to follow the six foot thing or because you also have to think about the staff and the students visiting because it's not just you. It's you also interacting with other people outside. So to limit the people. And even then that's, I feel like it's still a big number <laughs> for per day. Pero si nos quieren ahí temprano pagando parking permits, because again, they don't, they don't pay for our parking permits for anyone. Maybe another campus does, but not my position. They're not paying for my parking. Um, I, I need to bring my own PPE apparently. And I do bring food from home. I had to eat it in my cubicle, like a little like cave you know like and not interact with anybody for like that hour and then go to the bathroom and like try to limit exposure uh and that would be if I was like again that's just me once a week but imagine doing that every single day for five days 
we did manage to ask for Fridays completely nobody should be there because no one goes to campus on Fridays so and there's nothing to do there's usually nothing to do and if there is a lot of things like we're all burnt out from like Monday through Thursday mm-hmm. <laughs> from everything that we had to do yeah we're rushed but te digo it's just it doesn't make any sense but and a lot of things could still be done virtual I think like if we were to do better virtual everybody would be happy you know but because we not only want to force people to be in person to you know spend more money in other ways uh, and control people's lives as well uh, and force people um, because now they're they're wanting to differentiate themselves of saying that our university is all about in person but I'm like what about the flexibility everybody has been saying that they want flexibility and not only do the campuses not have enough spaces for offices, they don't have parking, they don't have public transportation that is accessible. Like if you live outside of the town that your place works, they don't have public transportation that is reasonable for you to get to work on time and to, for you to leave on time. Um, it's like a two hour, you know, uh, travel journey from like your house to your, cause you would have to switch so many different things. Like either you go to train, then you go to a bus, then you still have to walk a few blocks. It just doesn't make any sense. So I'm like, si no tienen el espacio la capacidad to have people in person, why don't you allow for certain people to be able to just work from home if they've been a lot more productive, do a lot more things at their own time and still get things done. It's just, it just looks different. Yeah. And also, I mean, we would need to do uh, daily test screenings you know like covid tests i think either daily or one test would last us a week and then we would have to do it again it doesn't make any sense especially how like uh well my campus uh, because uc davis has like the medical like school right yeah yeah for us we don't have one so they're saying that they don't have a testing site because i asked that too before in the forum and they said well we don't have the equipment or the resources or anything to do a testing site. But now they're talking to the county to see if they can become a vaccination site. And I'm like, sure, but if you're not testing, doesn't mean that there isn't any cases, right? So I'm like, they're doing like the whole Republican thing where it's like, well, if you don't test any, then that means there's no positive. You know, I was like, well, there's no positive because you're not testing anybody. And how is one day a week test gonna really do anything for you if you get infected within that time week or get you wouldn't even know how to trace it if it was once a week yeah I don't know but you know I'm also I'm so glad I won't be there to deal with that <laughs> you're like I'm out I'm well that just comes to show you like the workplace how quickly things can happen right and, and especially my job how things can quickly change within hired because admin decide to do they're like oh new new position new place oh I want to bring in a whole new initiative a whole new direction and all these things and for the staff have, that have been there long enough they're just like oh let's just write it out it's just it's the new person coming in there's so many people that have open positions it's wild like people moving in and out from like the admin roles because again, it's just a stepping stone for the next thing. Like there's no intention of creating sustainability in the place. 
mm-hmm. because your current position doesn't, you know, really give you incentives. They, they don't pay you one enough. And then also there's no recognition of the work that you can do. There's no promotion within even just your current role. Like what's the point of like having to jump up and up and up or even jump from one campus to one campus to one campus just to get to the opportunity you have. And from what I've seen from my campus is there's definitely a lot more priority or like uh, you get more um, like advantage for the people that are, uh, what is it called? There's like seniority? a specific, uh, seniority or like, pri- like when they prefer, like, pr- like your preference, prefer- preference. Mm-hmm. if you are an internal candidate or a candidate that already works at that place, then someone from the outside uh, getting a position. So ahí nomás están este dando like, uh, you know, like the uh, musical chairs where they're just moving from one job to one thing and I use everybody trading like roles, people stepping down, some people retiring and there's like whole new hires and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the sad part about higher ed and student affairs and working at a university. Like a lot of my colleagues, they seem to be like, just doing mundane work just because it's like either they got um what is it permanency in their jobs and so they don't want to start over or they have families and don't want to like you know it's kind of like very stagnant it seems like very people are just doing like cyclical work and I'm like well well because if you do something creative like that takes so much of your brain power to even put mm-hmm. it together because you have to like kind of like beg and convince so many people to do something different or you would have yeah. to have a support of a ton of different or permission from yeah. a ton of different people to even get it done and then by the time that it gets done it's like like two three terms <laughs> later um and then if you are kind of like just doing the mundane things and it's pretty mundane and also it's not very effective for the students like there's so many times that I'm just like oh I wish we could just do something so much better than this but again, I'm limited to this. I'm not paid enough. Um, I don't have enough resources because a lot of the things they're not really willing or providing because there's there's a thing that like higher ed just loves to say no to people mm-hmm. just to kill their spirits, you know? So at the end of the day, what do you do? Like you just kind of try to do as much as you can, a little bit above you not getting fired. <laughs> but <laughs> for you like to also try to keep it entertaining you try to do something slightly different but I don't know how people do it like I am struggling to do this full-time gig thing and not feel like bored or like sad or depressed of like how like ineffective it is how exhausting it is to do this like I don't I don't know that is why I'm here that's why I'm in Puerto Rico beautiful island and visiting the neighboring islands just because it makes work more bearable more tolerable right because it's like yeah yeah work 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 right but the time difference helps and then the weekends it's like yes I get to do something fun and so that's when people now ask me like oh what do you love doing for like work or like you know what's your dream job I was like I really do not dream about working like I dream about anything outside of work like I I look forward to the end of work I look forward to, because again, if it's not even like your work or you, even if your work or your supervisor is great or um, your students are awesome, this policy is coming from like the top, top, top. It can come federally, it could come state that makes your life 
extremely difficult to work the way that you value students and other people and the way that you imagine things. And also like for both of us Pisces, like we really do not work in this whole like work 40 hour week structure. <laughs> no, that's why we have to make it fun for ourselves. We've got other ways to make it, make it fun. But yeah, um, I also got my COVID vaccine and mine, I had my first one and then I have my second one in two weeks. So almost there so far. So good. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much what's been on my plate so far with regards to housing and job and COVID and work-life balance. So. Right. But in this whole work thing, it's like, you have to like, I feel like now with the income level that we're getting at, it's like, you have to always live with people. You have to like, really, you know, if you're going to do something fun, like do it fun. And then like, that's what you look forward to until the next fun thing, <laughs> because mm -hmm. te digo, esta vida no es para mí, but I'm here like, because there's no other. <laughs> I've come to realize that, you know, you know, jobs are going to not care about you. So again, you have to kind of care about yourself first and try to advocate as much as possible for new things to happen. Because again, if that's, if you're going to wait for things to change, it's not going to. So that's why I've like been trying to see if like they're going to cancel the loans or the debt, but yeah, these people are like, son bien colos for the thing that like people genuinely need, but for their own thing, they just go all out. And I want more people to realize this. Like we don't have to actually live like, out of all the things that we chose to do in our lives, we chose to pay bills, these arbitrary bills and how much like corporations waste so much money and, and they penalize people who get free because they, they waste so much. They could like have food for free. Like we could have just been like, you know, like the Sims, like the game where you could just could have done anything else for fun, but you decide like even the game, like you still have to get paid and, and do things, but we could be having cool things. So I've been going on Twitch and like going to like different streams, seeing like, or watching them while I'm working, like, cause now's the time to, to have fun. I'll report back what it's like to work in person because it's hard. It's hard to just do two days a week uh, where you just have free time. And then the rest of the time, like your job owns you basically. Pretty much that is the life of higher ed. And that's why we lose so many people every year, right? Why people get tired, bored, and they move on to something else because this is, I don't know if it's worth it in the long term, but it'll. Well, it, they, they'll find out because, I mean, they're already losing a bunch of employees already through the pandemic of a lot of women and femmes not working because mm -hmm. they left the job and then now it's serving like people who don't want to work in restaurants because that probably was traumatic I can imagine working mm -hmm. under a pandemic and serving yeah um, and then now people delivery people also I'm probably sure like are exhausted uh, once we go back in person I think we're gonna be the next ones that like have unemployment yeah. <laughs> tons of missing places and public health too I'm just thinking about all those people that just had to live through hell, especially the ones that were in the front lines of the pandemic. Um, yeah. But 
thank you all so much for for definitely the support of our of our Instagram. We did reach over two k mm-hmm. followers. Followers. So it's it's just nice to have a a steady growing uh, number of people supporting the work that we do. Yeah. So thank you so much, all of you, for listening to us every to our episodes, for supporting us, for tagging us on your stories and liking our Instagram posts. I'm hoping that our like conversations that we have will we like reach out to other people because I'm pretty sure some people are in the same boat you know they're tired of working they don't understand what it's like and also Ariana reporting back to how it is being in a in a PhD program I think it may be still like because it's is your program still in person or is it going to be partially virtual um last time I checked it would be 70 percent in person 70 percent of the people in person but I think all the UCs at this point have said that they want to go back more full. Okay. We'll see. So you'll get to experience what it's like um, yeah. and give us some <laughs> tips on what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. And whether or not you see reverse that is. Whether is, or not the PhD is what you have heard everybody else think. And you can just put out your own personal experience in one corner of the internet for people <laughs> to kind of verify. Because again, I've been reminding students the work in the school and the way that programs in higher ed is working now is very different from how other people in their generations have done this. So definitely, you know, definitely, definitely try to get the most out of the experience and also reach out for help because you need to, you need to know what the moving places are because they, they definitely aren't thinking about the best, um, like, what must you say? Like your, um, your, they're not putting the, the best intentions or your best interests at heart at all, at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll report back. I'm really happy to introduce our next guest. We have Cristina Rodriguez, um, Saidi, uh, which is a doctorate in psychology, uh, pronouns she, her, and our guest position, uh, she's a clinician. Uh, Cristina Rodriguez is a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, Cristina identifies as bicultural and bilingual. She identifies as part Mexican and Romanian and appreciates growing up with uh, two cultures and customs. She has worked in several community and university counseling centers to support individuals struggling with a variety of concerns, such as anxiety, depression, adjustment, relationship, and academic difficulties. She enjoys reading, writing, and spending time with family and friends. So welcome, Cristina. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. Yes, Cristina. So uh, for context for our audience who don't know that you and I met back in, I want to say 2005, but please correct me. (laughs) Uh, 2015. I I know this because it was for my, for my internship, for my postdoc. Uh, So I, that's the only, I have the year down because of that, 2015. 2015. Yeah. And um, we went, we both met at Sonoma State. So this is another colleague and wonderful friend that I've stayed in touch with since those years. And um, what I, what I remember of meeting you was some sort of event. And I don't remember the event, something where it brought us together and we met and started chatting, but could you share how you remember us meeting? Yeah, so I went out uh, to Sonoma State University for my postdoc experience, uh, and I'm from Southern California, so it was a first time uh, moving uh, and uh, getting to know up north, uh, 
I want to say it was in within the first couple of weeks of me being there. So I was new to everything, just starting to get to know the university. And I attended this uh, workshop training for undocumented students. Uh, and it was different faculty, staff uh, from Sonoma. And I remember sitting down and I didn't know anybody. And again, you came in like this bundle of energy and we're so quickly like, hi, I'm here, <laughs> you know, what's your story? And then I think by the end of that training, there was already plans for us to go for a hike. So <laughs> I remember it happening like that. And I'm so grateful that you know, I went to that training, um, you know, because of that, because of the friendship that we've been able to, to, to make here, so. Right. And that's the beauty of higher education. You know, it has its pros and cons, but one of the beauty and also about Sonoma State was that it brought us together, right? So we were both working there at the, around the same time and we connected and it was history from there. We went on many hikes, many, many memories. <laughs> and um, I look forward to um, connecting soon, you know, in person when we are able to. Yeah. So, um, Christina, uh, tell us more about uh, your educational journey and your upbringing. How can you, what can you tell us that uh, can, you know, let our audience know who you are? And, and you mentioned that you came from Southern California. Like, what was it like growing up there? What, what is your family structure like? And anything, anything else you'd like to share? Okay. Sure. Yeah, I, I born and raised in Southern California, and I've lived here for most of my life. And I grew up in a, a small desert town with my two siblings and my parents. I have a rather large family on both sides. So my dad was born in Mexico, and my grandparents on my mom's side were both born in Romania. So growing up, I've gone to all of these different family functions and just had the opportunity to just learn about different food, language, values, beliefs. And uh, it's been, I think, really helpful for me to be able to understand, you know, just working with other people, being curious. I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a psychologist because I was so curious about my own upbringing and just understanding the differences and similarities within the cultures that it made me want to know more about other people's uh, backgrounds and their family and why is it that you know people do the things that they do which is essentially you know what psychology is all about studying humans human behavior relationships so i think very early on just my family experiences led me to be curious about people i think that and growing up with an aunt who has a master's in social work and has you know been studying psychology and been in the field too i think that's a part of where this idea of majoring in psychology came for me. Yeah. So after high school, uh, I moved out to Ventura County area and uh, I completed my undergrad, my master's, my doctorate. I did everything at California Lutheran University. And it was a, it was a good fit for me because it was a, a private small university. And I really, I thrived in that. I needed that. I needed kind of that more one-on-one -on -one with teachers and professors. And, so I enjoyed that. And uh, after doing all of those things, I decided it's, it's time to branch out a little bit. I'm really fortunate to have a supportive family and uh, just a, a large supportive family. But I felt as though I kind of needed to push myself. I needed to challenge myself and know I can take myself somewhere in a completely different environment and, and be okay. And 
Um, so I did that. So the opportunity for Sonoma State came up and I felt like I have to do this. I, I have to try this. Uh, being from Southern California, it was just such a different experience in the beginning and just being on my own I felt as though I was like a college student, uh, uh, undergrad student, and I wasn't, but I kind of felt like I could, I could align with them because for the first time I was moving out on my own, you know, figuring things out. So there's a really good push for me to help, I think, gain confidence and believe in myself. Uh, and then I decided to come back home after that experience. I was able to say I did it, but I still wanted to come back home and be closer to family. So I did. I worked on getting my licensure, which was no small thing, but it happened and I'm glad that I did happen. And then I ended up at Cal State Channel Islands University, which is where I've been for four years now, something like that. So I've been working with college students for the past four years. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the population. I enjoy, again, that, that curiosity that I get to have in terms of learning about students, but also helping students find resources and do what they need to do to get that degree and figure out what's going to bring them passion and joy in life. I feel like I got very lucky with the family and friends and support system that I have. So it's nice to feel as though I can be part of that for someone else. Yeah, and tell us um, a little bit more about what has inspired you to pursue psychology. Psychology is one of those very popular undergraduate majors along with sociology, especially in um, the, the social sciences. So tell us what is psychology and also like why, um, why you wanted to work in um, the, the, because the work experience and your graduate school uh, journeys are a little bit different. So tell us about you know, your journey and also um, what ways could you, you know, either debunk some common myths of people who are wishing to pursue um, not only the major in psychology, but also career-wise somewhere around mental health or um, just psychology in general. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do that. So I think, yeah, psychology is one of those degrees that's that's impacted across the country. It tends to be, you know, I don't know, maybe within the top five or, or, or even more uh, majors. And it's it's so broad when we think about the psychology major and, you know, that bachelor's degree psychology major. And there's so many different ways that that major can be utilized. It's hard to pick for someone. How do I know you know, what route I take this? Do I take this the research route? Does this go the, the clinical route? Uh, I remember as an undergrad being uh, just wowed uh, by this professor who told me that one of his first jobs uh, was actually working for eHarmony, uh, the eHarmony website. And I just thought, you can do that with a psychology degree? Wow, I mean, I, I had no idea. So uh, it was just great to kind of uh, hear about what, what the different options are. And because there are so many options, I think it's really important that uh, individuals find what's gonna be the, the right fit for them. So part of that is, is knowing uh, what options there are. Again, the research, the clinical, uh, um, you know, being able to uh, use industrial, uh, and the IO, you know, field of psychology or marketing. Marketing shows up uh, um, so much when it comes to psychology related jobs because so much of why and how people purchase things has to do with the psychology. <laughs> So I think in terms of where to start uh, with that field is uh, 
the psychology bachelor's degree is designed to, to give a, a, a sample, an overview of the various different topics and what people could do with it. So if someone really liked their criminal psych class, for example, then it means, you know, maybe taking more classes in that area and to see what does a career as a, you know, a forensic psychologist look like. If someone really liked, um, you know, learning about uh, applied behavioral analysis in a psycho in college, then you know maybe that's the route to take. So many different places to, um, or yeah, many different places to go with this. Uh, I think for me, in terms of what led me down the clinical path, uh, and I think sometimes this is the way that it just happens, is uh, you know what you get exposed to, to uh, what happens to be within your community. And like I said, my my aunt uh, um, is one of those individuals, and I got to see her do clinical work and learn more about it and hear more about it. And I think that that partly fueled my curiosity here and my interest to take it that route. And it just so happened that my doctorate program was the brand new. So I'm part of the, the first graduating cohort for the doctorate program that I went to. And I think because of that, there was a lot of different opportunities to try out different things. Again, we were so new. So I think that also led to being able to really try out different things. Um, the program was a, a really good hybrid of research and clinical-based work. So I really got to see what was gonna be a, a good fit for me. And I found myself gravitating more towards the, the clinical work and being able to to really work uh, with uh, other individuals. Because again, I think it goes back to what's always fueled uh, my desire to be a psychologist is uh, curiosity. I just happen to be a curious uh, person. I can get easily drawn into uh, all kinds of reality TV shows, whether or not they're real, I don't know, but it's being drawn into the story and wanting to see where, where someone's gonna go with that. Uh, so again, I think that curiosity is what helped me make this decision. But I think for an undergrad student, uh, a place to start is to really see what are those classes within the psych major that really stand out and to use that as a guide to help see where this is going to go next. Because the reality of this is uh, that different uh, higher education degrees are gonna serve different purposes uh, for what a psychology major student might want. Yeah, the common thing that I hear a lot of students wanting to pursue psychology is mostly because they're interested in finally, you know, spending a couple, especially the intro psych courses, really try to expose you a lot more of just understanding humans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that draws them is like the helping professions, right? But um, I think what they get surprised about is that a lot of the classes or requirements really are not about, you know, the common just therapy like courses where you're just going to learn how to, you know, heal yourself in that moment. I think a lot of people um, aren't aware that there's the research route, clinical, as you mentioned, there's also the medical um, route as well. There's a lot of psych majors that end up become going to medical school uh, for this exact reason. Um, and other creative routes and knowing that master's there's a lot more options in the master's level as well, um, knowing that there's rehabilitation, school counseling, behavioral, neurological, uh, which is a lot more science-based and also therapy as long as, and in other, among other um, routes later on in the doctorate level. Um, and not understanding that a lot of the psych departments really, what shapes what the school specializes is 
the professors that are the ones teaching it. So yeah, every single school is going to have a different specialization or people that are really top notch in specific things. I think people who have been exposed to psychology are really like they're looking at, you know, what they see on TV um, and also what they see in terms of the academics. One of the big ones that people know about is Brene Brown because of the Netflix special and then the books and things <laughs> like that. So yeah. not yeah. everyone, not every psychologist is like Brene Brown or, you know, the like, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a great point to make. I mean, that's a great Netflix special. <laughs> it is. Uh, but I think that's a, yeah, a great point to make because I think, you know, there's so many other stereotypes uh, here, you know, with the idea that, you know, when you get into therapy, you lie down on a couch, uh, uh, but, you know, there's a, a lot of especially kind of Freudian psychoanalytic stereotypes just because that's so much of what early psychology was about. Um, so I think that there's definitely some stereotypes that have been maintained along the way. But yeah, with the undergrad experience, uh, most of the time, yeah, I agree. Um, it's not about those kinds of classes. It's really about building the foundation. And so much of that is uh, science-based. Uh, I mean, this is a, a science degree. So that's why research methods uh, uh, is there. That's why the statistics class is there. That's why you know that undergrad major is gonna involve some type of thesis. Uh, and really, I think you know it's a good setup because there are so many people that decide to pursue a, a master's uh, in a, you know some type of research degree. And even the programs that are clinical still maintain some kind of research component. My master's degree, for example, was in uh, clinical psychology. Yeah, I completed a thesis. Uh, I completed a thesis, I collected data, I submitted an IRB. Um, so I, I think that the research part is definitely there and it does lead to psychiatry to all other kinds of, of things. So I think it, yeah, it is important to know that that undergrad uh, college degree is really gonna contain a variety of different psychology courses. And it may not uh, always be about uh, you know, how to actually sit with a, a, a client, with a patient. Uh, that's not something that really I started to work on until I was in the master's program. And that's when that came more to light because it was really about foundation. Uh, and again, I, I kind of view it as a sample. So can I have enough of a sample to help me make some decisions here? And I, I agree that so much of that is derived from what someone has access to uh, and not just the professors uh, at what their interests are, but sometimes this is even location. That's why when thinking about a master's degree or a doctorate degree, it's important to to do the research and to know what does this university have access to that I might want that might be helpful for me. For example, um, at the university I attended for my higher education, I happened to, to have a couple of professors at the time that were very much into attachment theory. So one of the research projects that I got to work on was relating to attachment theory, which was great. That was something that was an interest of mine. So I think it's, yeah, it's also important to pay attention to not just professors' interests, but what does that university have access to as well? And the long-term, like how will that, you know, undergrad-wise, we don't always pick, you know, the program or the, the department because again, you're still, most students at that age are still exploring what they want to do long-term. But at the graduate level, there's definitely more, there needs to be more thought into what you want to get exposed to, who you want to get connected to, especially in the profession. Um, in terms of therapy, um, there's a lot of questions that people have in terms of if you want to do therapy work or work with clients one-on-one. 
the common misconception I've seen a lot has been that, you know, talk therapy is the only therapy available. Mm-hmm. And also that not every therapist is specialized or trained to work at specific issues, right? So when mm-hmm. I have been working with a lot of students who have um, certain things that they want to work with, like, let's say if it's racial trauma, parenting, uh, you mentioned a lot about working in college settings where you do talk to students mostly about anxiety and depression are the big top ones for sure. But mm-hmm. life transitions, I think that was really interesting. In terms of uh, the graduate students, that is a huge life transition, right? And so tell us about what your experience has been working with students in at the college level. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I I think that this kind of speaks to uh, something we were talking about before, you know, this idea of, you know, access, opportunity, and, and timing of things. So in the graduate program, um, the way that it works is students get matched with an internship, and it just so happens that I was matched with a college university. I had no college university experience uh, whatsoever before. So I just went into it as a learning experience uh, and I enjoyed it so much uh, that I purposely chose uh, uh, more internships uh, in uh, college uh, university counseling. Uh, and then for job search, uh, that's what I focused on because I've just enjoyed it so much. Uh, and I think uh, you know the transition, uh, the adjustment period, that's one of the things that I like to work on most with students because it is so important, uh, especially for you know, first generation students uh, that are paving the way for their siblings, their cousins, other you know, families and friends members in their life. Uh, so just kind of going through the uh, you know, the different phases uh, and uh, you know what that looks like. Uh, pre-COVID and what that looks like now might be a different experience, uh, you know, but in general, there's this idea that in the beginning, there's this rush, this feeling of excitement, a student gets to the university, they see all the different things that are going on. And again, there's a sense of, if they're, you know, maybe living away from home, freedom and excitement. And then sometimes right around midterm time, there's a little bit of worry and stress that starts to settle in because all of a sudden that transition from what a high school midterm to what a college midterm looks like, is still completely different. Uh, and then you multiply that by however many classes a student is taking. Uh, so around that time, uh, again, it's it's a period of high stress. Not only is that happening, uh, but sometimes that's where homesickness uh, starts to settle in. That's where homesickness, familiarity, uh, uh, of being with family, siblings uh, starts to settle in. Uh, and then students experience that, they make it through midterms. Uh, and then again, in pre- COVID times, they go home for the winter break, uh, just enough to settle and connect with family members again, only to come back and have to adjust once again to a new semester, new professors. So I think it can be kind of a a roller coaster experience for students at times. And I think, uh, you know, such as life, uh, I think I enjoy being able to kind of uh, help help a student figure out how to stabilize uh, that roller coaster for themselves. And now again, with COVID, you know, there's different things that are going on and that we're finding with students. Many of the students uh, have moved back home uh, during this pandemic time. Uh, so, uh, you know, their sense of freedom or independence and autonomy, that might look different uh, these days. Uh, you know, being able to, to socialize and connect with their friends or even connect to clubs on campus, uh, that looks uh, different these days. Uh, so just navigating that adjustment and what that's like, I think that's also very much part of the, the work with students and, and the work that, that I enjoy because 
again, it's, it's gratifying to me to be able to sit down and to talk about, oh, well, hmm, and we're talking about identity here and career. Okay, have you heard of career services? Let's make that appointment together. Let's get you connected to that service. Because sometimes it's not enough to tell a student this exists. I mean, I knew career services existed when I was in college. I probably didn't use it and take advantage of it to the way that I should. I think sometimes that, that extra step is let's sit down and call together. Let's get you an appointment together to help navigate to really making some of these college adjustments. So, so talking about, um, you know, having sessions during the pandemic, um, how has that impacted your therapy sessions or like when you're meeting with students? Yeah, it's, in, it's a different experience. Uh, so uh, right now, uh, most, uh, I would say within um, the Cal State, uh, at least uh, university counseling centers are operating with some kind of uh, telehealth model or at least a, a hybrid model. So telehealth, uh, um, you know, is a, a, a HIPAA compliant, uh, uh, usually Zoom-based way of, of doing therapy. Uh, and uh, it's uh, been quite an adjustment to do, you know, that from in-person, you know, having my own office type of space. Uh, so we do things uh, um, similar uh, and, and yet different at the same time. There's a check-in process uh, that's different. Uh, but the, the connection, I think what I'm finding so far is the connection is, is the same. Uh, there, whether it's Zoom or whether it's in person, there is a way to, to connect it to that student, which is so important. And in some ways, actually, um, there's times where I can actually get to something more quickly. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that I can share the screen. If I want to talk about a resource with the student and I want them to know about it, I don't have to email or follow up. In that moment, I can share screen and I can show them, hey, here's this app, uh, here's this thing to check out. Let's see if this is helpful for you. So I enjoy being able to, to do that right there in the moment. And I find that being really helpful and, and, and different to, than the way we did this before. I know one of the things that, that comes up when we talk about telehealth, one of the concerns is that, well, you know, is, is it as effective as in-person therapy? You know, will it make enough of a difference? And I think there's gonna be so much research that's gonna come out of this pandemic and telehealth. So I think you know, we have a while before we get to see what all this looks like. But I think so far, what we're finding is that, yeah, it can be just as helpful. Students are still able to get what they need. And in some ways it's more accessible because when we talk about college, college counseling, especially in this pandemic age, Privacy is one of the issues that comes up. Uh, students that live with family members, siblings, multiple um, members of the family in the household, it's hard to find that private space and time to talk about things, especially if family might be the concern. So, you know, we will see students in their car. If they have privacy in their car, then okay, we'll have a, a session where a student is in their car. Um, really just finding ways that maybe we didn't have access to before so the student can can get that appointment. And I think that has been really helpful to be able to, to make that transition because sometimes that's that's what's needed. Definitely. Um, I can I can imagine all those times when you I mean I can I'm I can imagine when you're having a conversation with a student and then maybe someone walks in or uh, you know they get interrupted and then what happens in those situations? 
Yeah, so that was, I think, one of the, the early concerns about this. Uh, um, and there's been so much training for psychologists, therapists uh, that has been going on with telehealth to exactly to address those kinds of things. Because, uh, yeah, we understand that with telehealth, we can't control what's going on with the other person's environment. And I think, uh, you know, that's where uh, having that intake and talking about Zoom procedures becomes so important because we, we plan, we plan as best as we can. So if that happens, then, you know, I might turn off my, my Zoom screen, I might put myself on mute. And then when I hear in the chat that it's okay for me to come back in, then I come back in. It might mean that maybe we reschedule huh, for that day or, or for that moment uh, because that privacy is so important. So it's a conversation that we typically have with the student from, you know, first point, like within five minutes. Uh, and it's especially important for me because I identify as hard of hearing. So I'm completely deaf in my right ear. And one of the things that I've noticed that's changed personally for me as a psychologist uh, is, you know, the, the Zoom sound experience. So in person, you know, in my private office, I could adjust the chair and I could do things to maneuver the room so that I could hear best. In a Zoom setting though, I can't control whether the neighbor's dog is going to bark. I can't control if a loud car is gonna come by. I can't control if there's a plane overhead. So there's so many factors here that are just simply beyond my control. And what I do is I typically within the first couple of minutes, let that other person know I'm hard of hearing. If a plane comes by, we might have to just pause and sit for a silence in a moment and wait for that to pass because otherwise it, it, it's just that much harder for me to hear. So it's, it's definitely a conversation that we have at the very beginning in terms of how might we handle this if privacy gets disrupted. That's awesome. Um, I mean, it's great. I mean, these, these are norms, right? These are protocols that you follow. And it's so great that that's established at the beginning, because I mean, I can only imagine how many times that might happen. And, and that way you both know what to expect and how to be prepared for that. Yeah. yeah. And just in general, in the, in the past um, several, like three years or so, there has been this huge uh, more awareness between uh, college campuses and seeing the heightened level of demand of students wanting to see uh, counselors, um, especially CAPS in their uh, campuses and how impacted those appointments had been where students had to wait two weeks or more in order to see someone or be even just the first session. Um, in terms of telehealth, um, there, that is one of the good conveniences is that you're able to, students don't have to go from one building to another or be able to have more flexibility in their schedule to see someone. How has that changed now in terms of the impaction or the level amount of um, clients that you're now seeing on a daily, daily basis? I think that the general consensus uh, for university counseling centers is uh, there's always more. There's always more resources we could use. There's always more to do. Uh, and I think that's true, you know, pre-pandemic and, and in the pandemic that we're living in now. So uh, always more. And I think with that being said, at the beginning, uh, um, the Center for Collegiate Mental Health, which is where a lot of statistics usually tend to come from for uh, looking at university counseling, uh, um, was tracking some of this. And I think the finding was that 
when the pandemic first started, uh, there was a little bit of a, a slowdown. Uh, however, uh, things are, are are picking up and and kind of moving at, at the pace that we've seen before, um, in terms of uh, the the individual appointments and the the urgent care. So at the University Counseling Center that I work at, for example, we have urgent care appointments, which is a same day. If a student is in crisis, you're welcome to schedule an appointment. You will be seen that same day, kind of thing. And I've noticed that that seems to be picking up. So I think the longer this pandemic goes on, I think that the more awareness students are having that university counseling centers are available, that we are available for telehealth and that that might be more accessible for someone, which is a good thing because that's what we want. We want the students to know that we're available and not just for urgent care or individual counseling. Sometimes some of the things that we do is, you know, have a one-on-one -on -one with a student that's interested. And we talk about um, the different degrees in psychology and the different career paths. It's not uncommon for uh, someone to come in and just want to know, well, what does it mean, this ID degree that you have? What's the difference between that and a PhD? And that's the part where I've seen like the interesting thing about, you know, making referrals for not only students, but just like anyone that we, <laughs> kind of come across and meet. In terms of referrals within different services, I think there has been um, an imp a push for a lot more of us to spread the news about accommodations and how accommodations are being placed in universities, especially how the number one thing that I've seen a lot more students having accommodations for is for anxiety and depression in terms of the classes. Um, how has universities like how equipped are universities into you know dealing with not only anxiety depression but also other underlying like other like identities when it comes to working with students who have maybe multiple things that they want to work on but maybe the counseling or the the people who are working with those students may not be the appropriate person so how's the referral process and how does that work uh, for any of our listeners kind of in that situation yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, so so for the first part, the anxiety piece, it, um, anxiety tends to be one of the top concerns uh, that college students are likely to present with. And I think, uh, you know, because of that, most college university centers uh, are, you know, really well equipped to, to be able to provide uh, some type of support at the counseling center. Uh, um, at Channel Islands, for example, we have uh, two groups uh, uh, that I happen to run. That's one of the, um, the specialties and interests that I have is working with students who are experiencing anxiety. So there's a general anxiety support group and then there's uh, a social uh, anxiety support group. And those groups are geared uh, towards uh, what is it like to have anxiety? How do I cope with it? And the other aspect of group therapy, how do I relate and connect to other individuals who are also experiencing anxiety? And that's what makes a group therapy so powerful, that ability to relate, to connect to someone. So I think that is a, a really helpful way that students can begin to work on some of these things. And you know, beyond that, there's the individual therapy, uh, there are, you know, the urgent care appointments. So some university centers uh, have 24-7 counseling lines. So those are also really helpful. At Channel Islands, we're fortunate to have one. And that's a line where if a student is experiencing some type of panic, let's say there's anxiety about the midterm tomorrow, then they're welcome to call that number and the therapist will walk them through reducing or minimizing some of that anxiety. So, you know, different types of services uh, and uh, 
I think, especially when we're talking about anxiety, that's really what's needed. It's not just, a, well, one thing is going to help me get better. It's, a, there are several options here. What do I need in the moment to, to feel better, to feel more okay? And I think that's part of the work of a counseling center to let the students know about the variety of the options and then to really encourage the student to be their own expert because they are in terms of being able to identify, well, what's going to work best for me? And I think this doesn't happen in isolation. So this isn't just the university counseling center, but it's working with academic advising, working with the, um, the, you know, the, the business office, working with the uh, wellness, uh, you know, if a university has a, a wellness uh, um, type of department, then it's making sure all these other departments know about what the counseling center is offering. So that if they're working with a student that's talking about anxiety, you know, they can connect and refer them uh, to CAPS uh, for that information. And then, you know, just really kind of building that collaboration because it's, it's so important to, for the student. And with that, um, I oh. have, sorry, <laughs> with that, um, I guess there's a lot of um, information you receive, right? So your listening skills are enforced and, um, and I guess for, and I've asked you this before, but how do you, how are you able to cope with all the stories that you hear? How do you turn yourself on or off? I don't know if that's even possible, but like, how do you keep, you know, how do you keep yourself safe and as you're listening to these stories and not let them impact you? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the, uh, self-care is the word that comes to mind. And we talk about self-care all the time for our clients and for ourselves as therapists as a way to prevent burnout or fatigue or compassion fatigue. And I think, um, yeah, that's where that, that self-care comes in. And much like you know, any type of mental health concern we talk about, you know, like anxiety, for example, it's not just having one self-care strategy that works, but it's really having a, a variety, a, a whole kit of self-care strategies that I can use. And so it's really on me to kind of assess at the end of the day, well, what kind of self-care do I need today? You know, What was my day like today? Did I take in a lot? And how can I, uh, you know, uh, put some self-care here in place? So, so that might mean that I take a walk, uh, and if it's a day where I really need it, I might take a, a, like double the time of my walk. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, I I need to talk to someone, so I might call a family member or friend. Uh, or sometimes it's a good meal. Uh, uh, or sometimes it's maybe not a, a healthy meal and maybe that's okay. Maybe that's where it's at that day. So it's, it's really self-care and making sure that I take time for that because if I take time for that, then I can go back uh, the next day and be present uh, and really listen and take in what the other person is experiencing. So I rely on the self-care and I also rely on my colleagues a lot. I think now, one of the things that work about working in a university counseling center that I'm fortunate is that I'm not doing this by myself. I have a team. I have a team that I can connect, that I can consult when needed, that I can relate to. So it's also kind of knowing when do I need to reach out and, and talk to someone else, which is you know very similar for, for students and what we encourage them to do. When something's going on, you know, how do we help them, you know, connect and reach out, whether it's a, uh, you know, in a one appointment with us uh, or getting them connected to 
the community because, but, but you see, you did say something about the referral process and I realized, I, okay, I didn't really speak to that. So the referral process, uh, um, that d differs uh, with the, the different resources that a university center has. Uh, but in general, the college counseling tends to be short term. Uh, and that typically means we see students for uh, recent stressors, uh, um, you know, for a, a short term couple of sessions. Uh, and if someone, uh, would benefit from more long-term therapy, then the College University Counseling Center can be helpful in referring that student out to the community because it's an overwhelming process. I tried to make a general doctor appointment just the other day and find a doctor. And I probably spent about a good four hours going through the list that my insurance provider gave me. And I called all those numbers and half of them were no longer in my insurance plan. Some of them moved to another state. It just, you know, it's a whole process. So I understand, you know, what this is like for trying to find a therapist in the community. And so we always encourage students to, you know, even if they're certain or they're really kind of curious about what that long-term therapy looks like, we encourage them to come in for an appointment so we can help uh, get that process started because it, it it can take time to connect. Uh, so it's important for students to, to not feel like they're alone in that referral process. And I think a lot of people don't understand like what it takes to work as a clinical psychologist is that um, that part of the training is actually putting in hours where you are um, under the observation of someone else where they're helping you just normalize like working with other clients with their emotions. Like part of the the classes, I've, I've had a lot of colleagues when I was um, in my master's program. I wasn't in the master's in counseling. I, I did a master's in education, but a lot of my uh, other graduate assistants, um, colleagues that I had in the office were in the counseling program. And a lot of the work that they said is like, oh, today we had to confront, I had to confront this one thing that I, you know, I personally didn't want to, um, but also how am I supposed to help other people if I also haven't addressed certain things? And so even if in the sessions that they have with, when they're doing the clinical hours, that thing came up for them, even like, oh, that impacted me, they have to work it around or, you know, address it within their supervisor or someone to help them walk them through. How do you deal with that in that session if it does kind of impact you? So I think, part of you know being able to see so many like stories that are so negative I mean I, I can speak from my own experience as an academic advisor where you know my primary role isn't to do therapy but it's uh, it always comes up when we're talking to students because they're sharing a lot of their um, personal experiences with you when they feel you know comfortable and part of it is also being comfortable with your own emotions like if you don't know how to handle your own emotions then it's really hard to be present for others and understand that the anxiety or the moment is temporary, but you know, recovery could happen, you know, and having that hope that everyone just gets to the other side um, with the appropriate, you know, network of support. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree so much, you know, with this idea that therapists, you know, we are not a blank slate. We are not void of emotion in the room. And we also, you know, don't know 
what that first intake is going to be like, uh, um, who is really going to walk into the Zoom space with us. Uh, and so that being said, yeah, it, there are times uh, where the story, the conversation, it might bring up uh, um, some of our own experiences or our own kind of emotional reaction. And, um, you know, the, the training experience for becoming a therapist can be very, it can vary in that some supervisors in, encourage uh, clinicians uh, training therapists to use that, to, to utilize their emotion uh, um, for the session. Uh, and there might be other supervisors that, uh, depending on the, the theory and their own training, you know, might uh, you know, recommend that that's not the case, uh, that we, we check our own emotions uh, at the door. So I think for a, a student, it can be hard to kind of figure out when you're training early on, you know, what, what's the best fit? How do I work best as a therapist? How do I best serve others? And I think over the years for me, I've learned that what works best is to be my authentic professional self. And what I mean by that is that I have to have a way to be me in the room because if I'm not, then I don't want the session or the work with the student to come across as inauthentic. So I find ways of being myself in a professional manner. So there have been times in the past where I have used an emotional reaction where some type of you know, transference, counter-transference, what we call has happened. And I've been able to use that. There's been times where if I felt that it was appropriate, I might have brought up something uh, um, within my own personal life uh, to really kind of drive the, the point that we're, we're talking about or that we're working on. And again, I think it takes time to, to build that and get comfortable with that. Because again, in those early days of training, depending on who you work with, uh, as a student, you might hear, yes, this is welcome. Uh, but you also might hear, no, we don't do that. <laughs> so I think uh, it's really about finding, again, what, what's going to fit. Uh, how can you be your best professional therapist itself and knowing the difference between like even for the student as the client to know that counseling as you mentioned in colleges is very different than let's say if you did long-term therapy with a therapist out, out of network or outside the campus and I hadn't seen that difference until I was working with students to help them do that referral process of I don't think this, based on what you're thinking about, you may, you know, I always encourage students to really look at their options and see what they're feeling the most comfortable, either going through their insurance if they have any, or look at uh, places where they can take people who don't have insurance and have low cost or, you know, work with a nonprofit that does that kind of work. Um, and I've noticed that part of it is you have to pick, if you are thinking about you know, finding a therapist is that you have to find someone who has a license, who's licensed in your state. And the fact that COVID now has tele, um, what is it, telehealth, or mm -hmm. you can do either a phone call or a video uh, Zoom conference with them, that um, you can now be able to pick someone out of, the, like, let's say if you're in the northern part of California, you can find someone in the southern California or, you know, somewhere around the state you normally wouldn't have been able to connect with but they specialize in that specific thing that you wanna work with and that you can actually meet with more than one therapist or meet with one more uh, person. It just doesn't have, you can't have that same appointment at the same time, right? Or the same day. 
Yeah, the telehealth, I think, has has really shifted uh, some of the way that this works. And yeah, when it comes to out of state, um, you know, that that's different. But the idea that, you know, even when it comes to uh, careers, uh, depending on, you know, where the field of psychology goes with this, it could be the case that a therapist lives in Northern California, but their job is in Southern California because they're working remotely. So it, it has changed things, I think, uh, in terms of career, occupation path, uh, and for clients, for people as well. Uh, in general, uh, uh, students or uh, clients are not recommended to see, uh, you know, two or three therapists at the same time. Uh, and uh, usually the reason for that is, uh, you know, each therapist uh, is going to work uh, uh, with a specific uh, type of framework theory, has their own particular style, and there might be, you know, a certain clinical goal there. And we wouldn't want that clinical goal to complete with uh, another therapist at work. Uh, but sometimes it's the case, especially in college counseling, we see this happen a lot, where a student might meet an individual individual counselor and maybe they're working on relationships, uh, but they might attend the general anxiety support group because uh, they might benefit from that. There's also anxiety concerns there. Uh, so when it's uh, related to different kind of topics, uh, that's where we might see um, someone working with multiple therapists uh, or different types uh, um, of um, healthcare uh, modalities. So it might be you know, a, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. It might be a psychiatrist and a marriage and family therapist. Uh, so it really kind of depends on you know what's going to work. I think the idea here is that we talk about a, a treatment plan uh, and within that plan uh, that plan is going to be relative to that individual and what best fits uh, their needs but yeah sometimes it can take some some time uh, to, to really set that up so I think encouraging students to uh, to be patient uh, um, with that setup uh, because it, it yeah it does take time. Yeah, I, even when I was, um, I never took advantage of these resources when I was in undergrad, not until I was at Harvard and I realized that I was paying for these services, so might as well take advantage of them. Um, but, you know, I was lucky that I met a Latina uh, psychologist or therapist and I connected really well with her. But I also heard of store, you know, of students who have gone to one therapist, one psychologist and one therapy session and realize that they weren't a good match. And, and they always wonder, is it okay to switch? Is it okay to see someone else? And I'm like, yeah, definitely. That's part of the process. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important, you know, to, to give it a try, you know, maybe more than one session to really kind of see, you know, what that is like, especially because that first session is, is intake. Uh, so it's information gathering, it's uh, let me understand what the problem is. Uh, um, and you so really have that intake and maybe a follow up to see what that uh, therapeutic relationship is going to be like. Uh, but what we know is that the therapeutic relationship, that's the strongest predictor uh, of a, a successful outcome in therapy. So it has to be there. The student has to feel like they can connect uh, with that therapist. And sometimes, uh, yeah, part of that is uh, it may be important for that student to be able to identify with the therapist identity, yeah, whatever aspect of that identity might be, sometimes it's really important, which is why it's so important that college counseling university centers uh, you know, have really a diverse array of therapists to work with. Because I think the idea is that 
students need to be able to identify and see someone that they could be comfortable really talking with. And sometimes, uh, you know, that that doesn't happen. And when that does it, yeah, we definitely encourage the student to to try again and find that fit with someone else. And that's very true in that. And that's the hard part of, you know, coming to terms for with students who are first generation, who have never in their life or have had people around them go to a therapist or do talk about any of these things that it's, it is a process and that it's not always going to work out the first time, which is the unfortunate part, especially if you are dealing with big things. Um, it's going to just feel just much worse if it doesn't work out the first time. And so um, it's just encouraging that people, it's like, um, I've gone to, again, therapist therapy or going to the counselors in on campuses and have seen who was the fair, who wasn't, but every single time you kind of see, okay, that was, that didn't work out, but now for the next time, this is exactly what I'm looking for, or let me take more time to inform myself what my options are. Um, if, you know, it, it's not working out, <laughs> how can I pivot and change to make a better outcome for everyone right around because as well as it's not a good fit for the client it might also not be a good fit for the therapist to you know take on the client so making sure that you know whoever is taking on um, clients also is looking for their your best interest or can at least inform you about what your options are in that moment yeah so, I think that Oh, I think that's what makes that intake so important because that is the you know it, the information sharing part of, of the process and I think there's there's so many different approaches that someone could take in terms of finding uh, you know the, the right fit the right therapist you know are we talking about insurance or, or you know financial means here for therapy are we talking about location you know with zoom that might make it easier but still in terms of geography what does that look like um, there might be gender preferences uh, there might be preferences in terms of one's educational background uh, um, given that there are so many different ways to become a therapist uh, there's also the preference uh, whether or not the person has a doctorate or a master's degree and within the master's degree is this a marriage and family therapist is this a licensed clinical social worker so there's so much variety here and I think it might be hard especially for someone who you know doesn't have a, a family or friends or anyone within their support network that has gone through this experience to be able to talk to about it because it's one thing to google it and research it because there's so much out there that can talk about it but it might be another thing to really have a conversation with someone else about how does one go about this process? What am I looking for? And what are the things that are gonna be important to me to make a good decision about this process? And I think, you know, doing all of that and getting it right the first time, it, that's not always gonna happen. And I think something that's important for students is this idea that just by calling or, you know, whether it's online or however the student makes that appointment, you know, taking that first step, uh, you know, is already an important step in terms of being able to cope. And, you know, even if that first therapy appointment is not what the student might've expected, just doing it, going through that process, you know, that's already a step closer to really making progress for the self. So I think sometimes our work is letting that student know that, okay, so this is not a fit, something else might be the fit, but know that you did something really important for yourself in terms of taking care of yourself. So I think that's a, a way to kind of reframe it sometimes. Yeah, and for most of our listeners who are, um, 
who are following us mostly because we do post a lot of social justice stuff, you know, feel free to also ask those people about what their social justice or, you know, perspective or something like that, if it is um, really important for you to find a therapist that can understand your, not only your racial ethnic identity, but also how does oppression play a role in mental health and also how that therapist can help you walk you through some of those um, circumstances or things that you want to talk about because a lot of this also ties into the training of that person if they don't have it or they don't have that you know maybe they have a specific identities that they that you can connect with but if this other thing doesn't doesn't connect with but it's really important for you knowing that you know to make a full assessment of asking in that session you may not know everything but you know as time goes on you you'll be able to discover more and more if it's a fit for all for uh, for all parties involved. Um, and transitioning into um, talking about graduate school, uh, walk us through the um, doctoral in psychology. Uh, how is that different or what, how would you describe it for people who may have done their master's uh, degree and are considering doing a doctorate in psychology? How does that, what is that different how does it differentiate themselves from a PhD in something else? And who would this degree um, fit well for? Okay, sure. So the, the doctorate in psychology degree, uh, when we talk about the doctorate degree, typically we talk about either the PhD or the PsyD. And that can be in different uh, topics in psychology. So it might be clinical psychology, it might be research psychology, for example, it might be uh, a doctorate of education in psychology. So it, it, there's, again, much like the undergrad degree, it, it varies in terms of what a student might really want to do or study. Now, I think um, talking about a doctorate in psychology degree, there, there's so much subjectivity here. I think it can be hard to be objective at times. So kind of like my, my disclaimer for this, but the, the PsyD and the PhD, traditionally, historically, one of the noted differences here is the difference in research psychology. So traditionally speaking, the PsyD program tends to be grounded in more clinical work, and the PhD in psychology tends to be grounded in more research-based work. So depending on what someone really wants, that might be a big factor in determining what type of doctorate degree they're going to get. Now, there is a, a variety of uh, across the nation uh, more hybrid uh, doctor degrees where a student might engage in both clinical work and research work. And I happened to attend uh, a program that was very much that. Uh, so not only did I gain clinical hours, but I also completed a doctoral dissertation. And again, went through the IRB process uh, and uh, um, had to present that in order to be able to graduate from my program. But, so it, it varies, again, in terms of the, the type of program and, and what the goal is. And typically, PhD research psychology programs, uh, uh, that uh, have heavily leans on research. Uh, and that's where students might be able to uh, work with professors on grant-funded projects and different research. If someone is interested in a research uh, psychology doctoral program, then it's really important to study and know what are the research interests of those professors, because whatever the interests of those research professors are, that's likely what that student uh, might be working on as well. Uh, so that's, a, again, a, a very important consideration. And that uh, is 
essentially true for a, a clinical uh, a doctorate degree in psychology in that it's helpful to understand uh, what type of clinical work are those professors doing? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of specializations do they have? Uh, if the doctorate program has a counseling center, what do they specialize in? I was very fortunate to attend, for example, a doctorate program that had uh, a specialization in working with uh, victim survivors of intimate partner violence, uh, which happens to be uh, another uh, um, interest of mine. And because of that, I was able to uh, uh, gain some training uh, and work uh, with that particular popula population. And that was important to, to me at the time. Uh, so really looking for, with either her doctoral degree, uh, what uh, um, does the university have access to? I think that's something that all these doctoral degrees uh, share in common. Uh, now, there are sometimes when we talk about career path, uh, uh, certain um, considerations to, to take in mind. You know, for someone, let's say, who is interested in working with, uh, um, you know, veterans, uh, uh, then sometimes there are programs that are really going to be looking for a PhD, uh, someone with that type of doctorate background. Uh, again, it, it, it depends, but it's important to know about those things because if that's the path that someone wants to take, then another important consideration and something that I, I don't think I really understood as a graduate student, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that I understand it now and I'm glad it worked, uh, was this idea of accreditation. Uh, so whatever type of doctoral degree we talk about with psychology, uh, um, really understanding what um, accreditation is. So, so American Psychological Accreditation within this country, within the United States, APA accreditation, uh, uh, depending on, again, what field, what kind of career uh, someone with a, a doctorate degree might want, uh, there are sometimes jobs that are looking specifically for that and might say something along the lines of, must graduate from an APA accredited program. So I think knowing that is, is also really helpful when determining what you know is gonna be the best fit for someone. And again, I didn't really understand what it meant at the time. I just, I find myself very fortunate that, that we got it, that we got it in time I graduated. Uh, but yeah, just something to, to kind of think about in terms of looking at these doctoral degrees. Now someone can, take the doctoral clinical route uh, to engage in therapy, uh, but that's not required. Uh, if someone would like to be a therapist and would like to sit in a room uh, uh, with clients and work on uh, you know, short-term, long-term counseling, if that is the goal, there are multiple ways to go about it. And again, some of those uh, uh, involve a master's degree. So that might be a, a marriage and family therapist. Uh, that might be a licensed clinical social worker. There are multiple ways, to, uh, again, of approaching it. The difference, one of the differences, and again, this is subjective here, but one of the differences between that master's and doctorate degree is uh, that the doctorate degree might come with more research opportunities uh, because that's standard uh, for a doctor in psychology, some type of research. Even in the programs that are more clinical based, uh, again, there's usually some type of research involved. Uh, so not only that, uh, uh, but in certain places, uh, you know, there might be a difference in pay uh, as well. Uh, if someone is in private practice, uh, uh, a private practice, uh, um, 
clinician with a doctor degree may be able to charge more depending on you know the, the landscape of private practice. So, so there are those kinds of considerations to, to take into account. The doctor degree also tends to take more time to complete programs maybe four or five years. It really depends. There's typically an internship process, a postdoc process, and a dissertation to complete. So I think those are also important things for students to think about. Why did I personally decide to go for this doctorate degree here as opposed to the master's? I think, uh, um, you know, going back to something that I said before, I, I, I wasn't done yet. So that curiosity that I had, that desire to really understand know, knowing more about human behavior and relationships, it, it just, it felt as though I, I needed to continue on that path and the doctorate degree was the way for me to to do that. Not only that, but I really enjoy research uh, as well. I really enjoy being able to understand the qualitative piece, uh, the story uh, about uh, why we do things uh, as human beings, but also to be able to, to put numbers uh, to that and to be able to make some type of statistical analysis or interpretation. And so for me, that doctorate degree really felt like that is the right doctorate degree uh, for me. Uh, and I think the other piece here was that I also just, I really value education and I really had this strong desire to identify myself as Latinx and having a, a doctorate degree. And so I think part of it was that I wanted to do it because I wanted to prove to myself that I could. So I think it was all of those things. And I think they're all really important to think about uh, for someone who is thinking about uh, this degree in psychology and, and, and all the different places it can go. That's amazing. Thank you so much for giving that great clear overview of like the different things to consider and the different pathways for, you know, if you want to work with people in, in a therapy type of environment. Um, I'm, I'm sure your family is super proud of you, right? Um, I don't know if you're the first one in your family to go to college, to go through that entire process, but um, I'm sure that they feel um, super proud of you and then how far you've come. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm not the first in I'm the, I'm the first to get a doctorate on one side. I'm, I'm not the first on the other, but I am I'm one of the older uh, cousins. And it's been really interesting to watch my cousins grow and see what they're doing and what they're learning about. Uh, and it's been really interesting to try to help them along the way, navigate things like student loans. Uh, what do I do with that? What do I not do? But, um, so I find myself in this really kind of fortunate position to be able to have gone through this experience and just uh, kind of... Yeah, be as helpful and as supportive of them as I can. And I think that's why, again, why, why I enjoyed college counseling so much because there was just so much to navigate, so much identity growth that, that happens. And I think it's, it's, it's nice to just be part of that process for someone else. That's good. And also for anyone listening, it's ultimately higher ed and programs um, go through some changes through time. So you know, the rules of yesterday are a little bit different based on the changes that, you know, the department see fit and who ends up, you know, hire who they hire or the new people who are they hiring and the new ideas of the upcoming, you know, young um, or younger um, professionals in the field and like what what takes place and in, in the shape of what they want to see the future of the, the field. And so I think it's important to also note that the curriculum, you know, to look at the curriculum of the, of the program that you're looking at, 
the professors that might be in there, but know that by the time that you finish, may, they may be different uh, or the different changes. So, you know, trusting your gut and knowing that whatever choice you make, as some of us, you know, navigating this place, you don't have to know everything, but you also have to make it clear of like what your ultimate goal is and your boundaries and knowing that, you know, some things may change and your plans may be different, or you may discover that's not really something you want to do and, you know, how to pivot from there. So um, now transitioning to our closing, is there any other piece of advice or anything else that you would like to share with our audience and in terms of what we talked about today? Okay. Uh, well, I think in closing, I think uh, uh, I would like to share this idea that uh, uh, pursuing higher education, figuring out what that path looks like for everyone, it, it can, can very much feel like a roller coaster at times. There are ups and downs uh, to this process. Uh, and I think uh, one of the, the ways to, to manage it is uh, um, to be able to enjoy it uh, to a certain degree here uh, because it can be stressful, it can be challenging, uh, but it's also something to, to just to enjoy, to enjoy that identity growth and development that's happening uh, over time, uh, to enjoy that. And I think to uh, surround uh, yourself with uh, a community of support, whether that's family or friends uh, or professors, uh, whatever that looks like, uh, just to really maintain uh, a circle of support, because I think that's a big part of uh, how, uh, how we go through an experience uh, like this. So knowing what that looks like on campus and within your own personal life, uh, because mistakes uh, are, are going to happen. That's just part of the process. Uh, I can share, I did not pass it the first time around one of the licensing tests that, that I took. That was devastating. I studied and studied. I thought I was so ready. Did not pass it. Such a uh, a roller coaster uh, for me uh, in moment in time, but really having uh, such a strong support base, it really helped me kind of uh, pick up, head back to the library, study, and and finally pass it. So I think uh, you know acknowledging that it's a bit of a roller coaster, and it, that can be fun at times. Uh, and when it's not, when mistakes happen, to again surround yourself uh, with that support that as human beings we all need, but we all deserve too. Such a great way to um, that's a great way to you know close this. But just as a last question from my part, um, what are you hoping to do in your next in your professional? What are you hoping to do next in your professional career for yourself? I know you've taught previously, and um, you're at a point in your life where maybe you're transitioning, or what does that look like for you? I, thanks for asking. I think I would like to write uh, more. Uh, so I started a, a clinician's corner uh, uh, at Channel Islands where I tend to write on different mental health topics. Uh, and I found that to be really gratifying. Uh, so I enjoy the writing process. I enjoy being able to provide support to students in different ways. And I think it's something that I'm looking to be able to, to do more of, to expand uh, the writing, you know, to balance that with seeing clients, but to certainly make uh, more time uh, for that. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for your time, for your insight. Um, I appreciate everything you shared and I'm sure there's more questions, but um, thank you for joining us today and Fati. Thank you so much for walking us through uh, not only just your personal life, but also providing the space for 
you know, any person who is kind of debating between all the options in the field of psychology that know that um, like many other social science and arts and humanities uh, careers, it is very broad and there's a lot of, you know, greatness, but, you know, embrace the, the journey and know that um, every step of the decisions that you make is going to get closer to, you know, where you wish to be or want to be. So thank you so much. Um, and thank you all for our listeners. And this is the end of the episode. Thank you. In today's BIPOC business shout out, we would like to highlight Bean Paints, which is the result of a multi-generational love of pigment, paint, color, and innovation. Bean Paints draws on their early educations in indigenous pigment and expands it to encompass all paint traditions. A focus on high quality pigment content creates sublime artist materials with plastic free packaging. Like fast pigments, tree sap, gum arabic, and manitone honey blend together to create a handmade saturated color that is a joy to paint with. From thick strips to fine washes and details, qualities evident in every stroke, their watercolors are shaped into paint stones, their version of a half pan, before being wrapped in bees waxed canvas. Their pans are packaged in slices of cedar and birch offcuts from an indigenous sustainable lumber operation. You can find more about Bean Paints at beampaints.com. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.